Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Heredity Podcast. I'm Jeff Marsh. On the show this month, can genetic diversity protect against disease epidemics? And what's really shaping the genetic diversity of a post-glacial colonist? Genetically homogenous populations are more vulnerable to infection. That much we've suspected for several decades and has led us to the idea of the monoculture effect. But it's not just crops that suffer from being too genetically similar. People are beginning to ask questions about the monoculture effect occurring in wild populations, and this month Kayla King of the University of Liverpool has written a review. Here she is. The monoculture effect describes the link between genetic diversity and disease resistance. The idea is that infection is more likely to be transmitted between hosts, host individuals which are genetically similar. And if pathogens encounter hosts which are genetically dissimilar, then they won't spread as well. Okay, so this is well documented already in agricultural setups. The idea is that monocultures or fields where you have the same plant species or the same genotype um, planted throughout the field, they're more susceptible to disease spread than um, fields which have a diversity of plant species or a diversity of plant genotypes of a single species. Is this phenomenon um, responsible for any notorious crop disasters? Yes, the monoculture effect has been well documented in the example of rice blast and other sort of very important crops for human consumption, really. Okay, but this lack of genetic diversity within a population isn't limited to agricultural or domesticated setups. It also occurs in the wild, right? Yes, and that's what we're interested in looking at, is whether or not the monoculture effect could be applied in to natural host populations. So it's understandable why why crops uh, lose their diversity. How does it happen in the wild? So genetic diversity can be lost in natural populations through genetic bottlenecks, for instance. So when um, animals um, expand in, 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 into new habitats. Um, and genetic bottlenecks can also happen if, if habitats are isolated from human activities, for instance. And we also know that genetic bottlenecks can occur, um, and inbreeding is another example, or organisms that self-fertilize as opposed to outcrossing with other individuals in the population. So genetic bottlenecks, inbreeding, um, are good examples of ways in which genetic diversity can be reduced in host populations. Okay, so have you found any evidence then in the literature for, for these kind of populations being more vulnerable to epidemics? Absolutely. So um, there are a handful of observational studies um, which show that, again, if comparing two populations, one, um, for instance, which may be a founder population and is more genetically homogenous, and a population, so sort of the native population, which might be more genetically diverse, the genetically diverse population will be m- much less susceptible um, to disease than, than the founder population. 
and um, all, also in the case of inbreeding versus outbreeding, host populations which um, undergo periods of inbreeding are more susceptible to disease than those that are outbred. Okay, so we've kind of got theoretical studies to back this up. We've also got these field studies that you've mentioned. Yes. And there are also kind of model, model organisms used to test these hypotheses as well, right? Mm, the field studies show that indeed diversity matters, but there are, of course, major gaps and, and, and there are specific questions that we don't yet know about. So how much diversity is actually necessary, um, for instance, to, to stymie disease spread? And there have been um, some experimental studies using so- eusocial insect colonies and also freshwater crustaceans called Daphnia, which have been able to manipulate levels of genetic diversity and give us a sense for how much diversity might actually be required. Right, so as opposed to finding patterns of you know less, less diversity leading to epidemics, you're trying to work out like a threshold for how much diversity could protect you against an epidemic. Absolutely. So... Um, trying to determine if, if there's a certain diversity threshold in, in a population nature could be very important. Okay, and has there been any headway there, or are you just suggesting that it sh- we should start doing this? Uh, no, um, so there is um, some experimental evidence, but again, it's just sort of using two groups where you have these host monocultures and, and these um, host populations of several different, several different clonal genotypes. Um, and, and we know, for example, that 10 genotypes of a certain organism can actually stop disease. But we need to look for a gradient. We need to look for the shape of the relationship. And this has not been done yet. And, and I guess that's also just, just in Daphnia. I guess we'd like to extrapolate yes. further afield. Absolutely. So um, vertebrates, of course, but invertebrates as well can be incredibly informative. Now, when I think about epidemics and stuff, especially when I'm thinking about humans, I often think about population density as a risk factor. Yeah. I wouldn't want to get on a busy tube on the metro, for example. Right. Um, is that, I mean, what's the relative importance there as, as compared to diversity? Right. Well, very good question. The two questions we're really after is how much diversity is required to stop disease spread and how strong are the effects of genetic diversity compared to other factors that can affect disease spread, such as host density, like you mentioned. And so um, we conducted a set of simulations which actually manipulated levels of host genetic diversity in a population and host density. And we found that when host density was increased and genetic diversity was not, indeed, disease spread more. But when host density was increased and genetic diversity was also increased, disease spread was rapidly um, stopped essentially. So it seems that the effects of genetic diversity far outweigh the effects of host density. So even though that's quite theoretical at this point, I mean, is it too early to extrapolate to humans? I mean, are there any populations of humans below this threshold of diversity? Lots of questions have to be answered yet, um, and we're suggesting just merely a few of them. Uh, The genomics revolution will help a great deal, um, in trying to examine what particular genes may be responsible for resistance and what level of diversity at those genes at the population level might help. Um, but there's a lot more work to be done. Okay, so the reason we're talking now is because you've written a review for Heredity this month. Right. Um, what's the future of this research and what should young biologists you know, be expecting to find a job in? <laughs> well, I would suggest that we need a great deal of theory. There are I think, three theory papers linking genetic diversity and disease resistance. And this monoculture effect is conventional wisdom. 
Um, so from the broader perspective, I would suggest to young researchers to always question these, these bits of conventional wisdom um, and to ask more questions and to look behind the patterns that, um, that have been seen. Um, in addition, um, experimental studies in the field and in the lab manipulating uh, the exact numbers of, of genotypes, the exact levels of genetic diversity um, will be very important. And in 20 years, once all these kind of answers have been made, mm-hmm. what, why is this going to be use, a useful field? Right. Well, determining whether or not genetic diversity can, can stop diseases and stop disease outbreaks and determining whether or not there is an actual threshold of diversity required in natural populations will help us in conserving endangered species, for instance. With populations that occupy previously glaciated regions, you know that they're there because of a recent colonisation event, or at least sometime in the last 18,000 years. On the other hand, those at lower latitudes are expected to be relatively ancient. And because more recently colonised populations typically show reduced genetic diversity, you often find that genetic diversity decreases with increasing latitude. But population size also decreases towards the margins of a species range, allowing more scope for genetic drift to reduce diversity. So disentangling the effect of drift from that of the historical colonisation on a population's genetic diversity can be problematic. Lucky, then, that the rare North American orchid, Isotria medialoides, actually has larger populations in the previously glaciated regions than at lower latitudes. I spoke to Judy Stone at Colby College in Waterville, Maine, about what this peculiar little flower can tell us. Most people think that orchids are very showy and beautiful. Obviously, people like to collect them and put them on their lapel because they're so gorgeous. But this is a really strange orchid because it's not pretty at all. It's small. It's pale green. It looks almost nondescript. And it's different from most orchids because... Unlike most orchids, which are trying to attract an insect pollinator, this orchid is able to make seeds all by itself, and it isn't putting any effort into looking attractive at all. Right, so it's a completely selfing lineage. It's a completely selfing flower, that's right. Okay, and their range then is in North America, and that's an area which has been covered by glaciers during during the last ice age, is that right? Well, so one reason we wanted to work on this species is because it lives in an area that spans the part of North America that was covered by glaciers and the part of North America that was south of the glacial advance. And so we were interested in looking at um, how um, populations can maintain or whether they can maintain their genetic diversity when they are colonizing a region that was previously um, covered by ice. And so let's just talk more generally about these regions. I mean, they leave a kind of characteristic stamp, don't they, on the genetic diversity of a population? Well, they do, and this is a strange thing. I mean, normally what we see, there have been hundreds of studies, and normally what we see is that uh, when a population is colonizing a new region, it's going to be losing genetic diversity. So the classical case would be you would start out with a very diverse and old population, and then a subset of that population would colonize this new area, and the farther that they've colonized, the less diversity they would have. And one of the classical uh, examples of this is actually the human species, right? So we all started in Africa, and you can look at maps showing human genetic diversity, and gradually as humans migrated from Africa 
to Europe, you know, to Eastern Asia, to um, the Americas across the Bering Strait, right, gradually they're um, losing genetic diversity and becoming uh, more and more genetically um, uniform lineage. And this has happened with most plants and animals that we've looked at. And that's the strange thing about this species is that um, as it colonized, it actually um, didn't lose uh, genetic diversity in that same kind of stepping stone pattern. Okay, and so in this paper, you were trying to sort of assess the relative roles of these bottlenecks through these colonization events, you know, after glaciation, or contemporary forces of genetic drift. That's right. So in this species, the contemporary force of genetic drift is far more powerful than the historical forces of colonization following glaciation. I mean, just explain to us how how you came to that conclusion. Well... So if colonization events were the main factor, you would expect genetic diversity to decline with latitude. And the problem with disentangling this in most species is that you generally see population sizes declining with latitude. And so it's very hard to separate out, well, was it the colonization or was it the population size declining? Because both of these things are going to cause lower genetic diversity at higher latitudes. So the reason that we chose this species is it's unusual um, because it has larger population size at higher latitudes. So we thought, well, let's look and see if um, genetic diversity is more proportional to population size or to latitude. And is the reason that those populations get larger just because that's a good place to be if you are one of these orchids up at that northern range? That's exactly right. They're following right behind the glacial retreat, and they do best in these cooler climates. And so what did you find? The um, populations maintain their genetic diversity with latitude. In other words, in fact, they're the most diverse um, towards the front of their uh, expanding range. And so if the conditions are favorable for them, then they're able to maintain large populations and they're able to maintain genetic diversity in spite of the fact that these are some of the populations that have traveled the farthest distance since glaciation. We're kind of saying then we're sure that the contemporary processes like drift are the key factors in determining this genetic impoverishment in the in this post-glacial colonist. That's exactly right. Drift is by far the predominant factor in determining genetic diversity in this species. Do you think this holds true for all post-glacial colonists, or is it anything to do with this plant's life history? Is it because it's a selfing lineage? Right. So obviously drift affects all populations to some extent to one extent or another but uh, the question is what's the balance of drift and compared with other processes and so this is a very unusual species Um, you know it's very very rare it's been called the rarest orchid in eastern uh, North America and it's also relatively unusual in being selfing we don't have that many species that are complete selfers and so Yes, I would say that this is not a representative species. This is a very unusual species in the extent to which drift drift operates on it because of the tiny size of the populations and their almost completely uh, selfing method of reproduction. Does your research have any kind of broader applications for our understanding of how genetic diversity is maintained and structured? Well, some of the broader implications have to do with conservation biology, of course, because we live in a world with a rapidly changing climate, and one of our pressing concerns is going to be how to maintain diversity in the face of this rapidly changing climate. 
And I know it's a very controversial um, consideration, but I think we have to face the fact that we may need to consider uh, facilitated migration in some of these cases. I mean, if the climate is changing so quickly that some of these species can't keep up, and a species like this that's healthiest uh, at the expanding margin of its range, it may be that if we want to maintain diversity, we have to consider uh, helping them out a little bit. And in terms of the broader impact for basic science, I think that it's very important for um, people to consider that you know, drift is always with us, and especially in a fragmented landscape, an anthropogenically fragmented landscape, uh, genetic drift is, is going to be impacting species who historically uh, wouldn't have been so affected by it. That was Judy Stone of Colby College, Waterville, Maine. And that's it for this month. We'll be back in September. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.